The following is presented by Maranatha Bible Church of Comstock Park, Michigan. For more information, go to mbcmi.org. So we'll go live now, somewhere around now. So if you have your paper, as I said before, week three should say putting it into practice. So on the at the onset of this, uh, I structured it a little bit differently. <clears throat> so I'm going to... We're going to talk about some things that are happening uh, in this particular moment. Look at abortion and euthanasia, um, and uh, what that looks like in society. But then we want to say why are these things happening? So it's more of a dialogue than just teaching you, uh, because I want you to be able to interact with people on this as you're talking with them. Um, and so when somebody, you know, uh, tells you that, you know, to um, to, to be pro-life uh, is actually not a Christian thing because you're, you're not caring for the individual. You're not thinking about the ramifications of this. and you're not, So you need to be able to respond in a way that's not your opinion, but is coming from what the Scripture says. Because we oftentimes get into issues because we're arguing about opinions. And the same thing I tell my kids all the time. It is absurd to argue about opinions. Because you could go into a grocery store, go into the, the ice cream section, and you could pick out your favorite ice cream and somebody else's favorite ice cream, and all you're arguing about is an opinion. And you will argue until the day of the rapture. Because all you're trying to do when you argue opinions, do you realize this, is to change that person to think the way you think. When you argue from Scripture, you're telling that person you need to believe what the Bible says regardless of what you think. And so I don't want you to come away thinking, oh, my opinion, here's my opinion, and it's based on my own intellect. That's not what we want. We are basing what we believe off of what the Bible says, and then we're clearly articulating that to other people. And then when they don't agree with what you've said, it's not that they're not agreeing with you. It's that they're not agreeing with what Scripture has clearly said. And so we need to take our feelings out of it. We can't be offended by it. Because it's not our original belief anyway. Because if you were to change your belief to what somebody else believes, then they'd be friendly towards you. So therefore, it has nothing to do with you and has everything to do with what Scripture says. So my hope is that you can walk away saying, I hold to this because of what the Bible says. Not because of what somebody has logically deduced or somebody who has said, well, here's how it has to be. But you can actually walk away saying, I believe in this because of what the Bible says. And so that's kind of our segue. Page one is just once again an overview. Being on guard. Just really want you to think about Second Peter 3.17. I think it's so pivotal. If you haven't been here for the last couple of weeks, that be on guard is a command. It's an imperative. It's Peter telling them, you need to be on guard. Because what's the opposite? And this is great. So that's so that's your purpose clause, right? So why do you need to be on guard so that you are not carried away? That carried away, as we've been talking about, is a passive. It means that either you are actively being on guard or you are passively being carried away by something else, which would tell us that there's no neutral ground in the Christian life. Either you are doing something or somebody else is doing something to you. you you're, you're in a river. You're not in a lake. The river has a current. And as that current is flowing, either it is taking you to somewhere that you don't even know where it's going, or you are going in the opposite direction because you know you need to get somewhere. 
That's what Peter is saying here. So either you are on your guard or you are carried away. And then he says what we're carried away or who we're carried away by. The error of unprincipled men. And then what happens when you're carried away from by unprincipled men? He says you actually fall from your own steadfastness. So by being carried away by unprincipled men, you are not going to be on guard. You are actually going to fall away from your own steadfastness. He's not talking about losing your salvation. He's talking about that steadfastness, that, that firm belief in truth. Because you've gone from believing what Scripture says and holding fast to that, to believing what unprincipled men have said and holding on to that. And so that's where we as believers in our day and age with the, the marketplace of ideas that are out there have to say we need to be on guard. So being on guard is you're being watchful. And not watchful as in you're watching Fox News. <laughs> watchful as in you're paying attention to what's going on around you. The old English term, circumspectly. You're taking in all the information to make a wise decision as you're laying it up against to what Scripture has to say. So we have to we have to put time and effort and energy into knowing what the Bible says. We don't have to know everything that's out there, but we have to know how it interacts with Scripture when it comes to us. So there on page two, I just wanted to continue this from last week because I want to give you the paradigm for how Christian ethics are or how biblical ethics are and so think and act differently than the culture you live in so it should be you should be seeing this more and more and some of you perhaps in the industries that you work in or your family members or or friends that you're around you you should be vastly different or becoming vastly different in fact james says a peculiar people compared to the people that you are around because we no longer live, as we talked about last week, in a, in, a, in a culture that accepts Christianity kind of as the normal ebb and flow. It's no longer like that. You're being told that you're on the wrong side of history, that you have archaic beliefs, whatever those things happen to be. So you should start to see a difference between what you believe and how you act and the normal culture that you interact with. And so as you see there, Christian ethics is firmly absolutist. It's based on the character, realize this, of an unchanging God who cannot lie. It's manifested in God's law, which cannot be broken. And in the person of Jesus Christ, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Relativism is no option for a Christian. So we gave the example last week. You had the companies that... Uh, want to make money because you start a business. Nobody starts a business to go out of business. You start a business to make money. Well, then you had the government that came in and said, hey, you need to start grabbing on to the LGBTQ agenda and you need to start making sure that your people are not racist. So we started a whole new department, diversity, inclusion, equity, whatever that thing's called. Start sending people into companies to tell you how racist you are because of the things that you do. Though you didn't even know you were racist, but you are because of the way that you're doing things. And so then companies started to lose money because people didn't like that. So now companies are saying, we have an option. Are we going to continue down this path, which is obviously losing money, or are we going to go back to what our shareholders, stockholders, board members all say we need to do, which is actually make money? That would be a relative ethic, right? So they don't actually have any ethics, right? They're just saying, what are we going to do during this time to, to better ourselves? Well, we thought we were going to go in this direction, but that's not working out. This direction does. So if we don't take a side, 
then we're actually going to make money and get back to why we started a business anyway. Christianity can't be that way. We're not based on what's happening around us relatively. What we want, what we are or who we are is based on who God is and what God has said in his word. And so the next sentence there, to be realistic, however, we live in a relativistic age. Absolutism is for most people, we are around an archaic and untenable concept. Meaning that you can't hold to a firm ethic because we live in a changing time. So what they're saying is ultimately the times that we're living in are dictating the things that we hold to be morally sound. And we as believers can't live that way. So this is why I'm saying you're going to start looking differently in the culture that you live in because their ethics ebb and flow with what's happening around us and ours are staying flatlined because it's based on what the scriptures have to say. So for the Christian, the source of morality is God's revelation. And this is why you don't mesh well with people around you. When you say, I believe this because the Bible says, it's almost like the ears turn off. Or they look at you as some uneducated individual who hasn't moved past the the Middle Ages or the Dark Ages. Oh, I can't believe you still believe that. Let me educate you on why we don't hold to those anymore. But that's why the world around you looks at you like you're crazy. When asked why we believe these things are right or wrong, we have but one answer, because God said so. I mean, it's it's the easiest thing to say. Right? There's no pressure on us whatsoever. We didn't come up with it. We're not forcing people to believe this way because we believe this way. All you have to say is because God said it, this is why I believe it. And then you can see there, how do we know God has said it? We know it because God has revealed it. The nature of morality of a Christian, morality is objective, not subjective. So meaning we find our morality from the scriptures, from God himself. God himself has spoken to us through the scriptures. There's an absolute basis, meaning we believe in an actual right and an actual wrong found in scripture. Morality is normative, not utilitarian, meaning utilitarian is like the right action will produce the best results. So if you look at a utilitarian ethic, it would say, the one that provides the best results for the best amount of people must be the best thing to do. So what would your response be to that? If somebody said, hey, the best ethic is the one that provides the best outcome for the most amount of people. Who decides that? Who decides what the best outcome is? I mean, it's a simple thing. When you ask somebody, who decides what the best outcome is? Because now you're looking for what? Somebody higher than you. So if you say, well, somebody has to decide what the best outcome is. So now you're saying that there must be an ultimate decider. So now all we're arguing is who's the ultimate decider? We're saying God is. And they're saying, well, there might be somebody better than God out there. Who gets to decide what's the best for everybody? So that's why we're not utilitarian. And then this is another we talked about last week. Morality is discovered, not created by man. So the Bible gives us morality. We read the Bible. The Holy Spirit lives inside of us. The Holy Spirit illuminates us as we read Scripture. And that's how we understand what morality is. We're not discovering it 
as if it, it's uh, or we're not creating it, we're discovering it. Man's not saying, okay, over the last few thousand years, this hasn't worked, so now we're going to try doing this. The Bible actually tells us exactly what to what to do and what to expect. So the nature of our morality, the superiority of the Christian view of, of what is right, our superior source is God, the manifestation is Christ, our ethical declaration is the Bible, and our motivation is the love of Christ. And that's really, in a nutshell, how we base our life of morality or ethics. So, the doctrinal basis for the Christian ethics, you see there, what you do is based on what you believe. So, we talk about this all the time. It's our heart motivation. You're always going to do the thing that your heart motivates you to do. You can say your belief determines your behavior. So, what you're doing can always be traced back to what you believe. You know, doctrine is closely related to action in the entire New Testament. As I said before, Paul lays a doctrinal foundation and he shifts later in his letters to the, the practical ex- explanation or exhortation, meaning he says, here's the doctrine that we're to believe. And then the second half, he says, now since we believe this doctrine, therefore we are to live in a certain way. Theology governs our ethics. One of the reasons why we consider ourselves a teaching church. You have to know right theology in order to live the right way. And so theology would just mean you have to know the right things about God in order to live in such a way that blesses Him, that honors Him. And as you live in such a way that honors Him, then you yourself will be blessed by God. And it's not a, it's not a legalistic transaction. It's not saying, okay, God, I've lived this way, so now you, you owe me this blessing. That's not what the Bible says at all. We're doing, we live that way out of gratitude for what God's done for us. So our heart motivation is that now we are free to live in such a way that honors God. And that last statement under the theology governs ethics, uh, our conduct is important, but principles are far more so because understanding and knowledge are essential to right outcomes and practice. Conversely, right practice is evidence of the existence of right principles what we sincerely and actually believe and think makes us what we are and determines what we do. So what we do always flows out of what we believe. Always. Right? Always. And then just some of the basic tenets of the Christian faith. Theological tenet, meaning that the character of God, we believe God's the source of all things. God is a person. God is supreme and holy. God is absolutely unchangeable. So what we believe about God, what we believe about man, the anthropological tenet, The central insight of an authentically Christian morality is a realism concerning the limitations of our human nature. Meaning that the Bible says who man is and what man is capable of doing. Man is wicked in his heart and he is incapable of saving himself. He is incapable of doing anything good for God. He's doing things good. We would never say civilly he's doing things good. But for God to glorify God, man cannot do that unless he is born again. And so if you look at the third bullet point, and this is key, the doctrine of original sin destroys naive views of human perfectibility. So man cannot ever be perfect this side of eternity, but he starts on the journey to that as he's saved through the sanctification process. We would say restoring more of the image of God. And then because of Adam's sin, there's an impulse to sin, or we would say total depravity, 
within all human beings. And the anthropological idea or the idea of man is where you and all of your unsaved friends, family, co-workers differ from the very beginning. Because they would say, well, there's something good in people. Maybe you've heard, I just can't believe that there's nothing good in that person. And I would say, I believe there's nothing good in anybody until Christ comes and makes them good. And so your starting point is completely different. So if you get frustrated when you're talking to individuals, that's why. You're literally starting from total opposite ends of the spectrum. Because the Bible says there's nothing good in us, and the unsaved person can't get there. Because if they say that there's nothing good in that person, then they're admitting that there might be something not good, or there might be nothing good in them as well. And then for them to say there's nothing good in me, that means that from an unsaved perspective, logically you have to find something good outside of yourself to save yourself, which is exactly where God wants us to be. Because then we know there's nothing good in us. And so speaking on the next one, soteriological tenet or salvation, how is it that we are saved? You know, God in his grace made provision provision for the restoration of man. And the provision for restoration is itself ethical. God provided a way for us to be saved. How can man be restored to a right relationship with God? Religion has has debated this issue and aside from a biblical worldview and a biblical ideology every other religion says man has to do something fill in whatever blank that you want man has to be good enough man has to do certain things man has to beat himself up enough if man can do some of these things then he's going to start earning some kind of favor with god yet the bible never says that jesus met all of these demands Jesus is the one who we point people to. As a believer now, life is from Christ, life is in Christ, and life is of Christ. So now we live not as those who are darkened in our minds, not as those who have no hope, but we live in a world that is hopeless, carrying the keys to hope with us everywhere that we go. And so with that idea, we want to look at issues. So we'll talk about, like I said, this morning, abortion, euthanasia, or doctor-assisted suicide, and how that's going. And uh, these are things that we can't be silent on as believers, right? And and whether or not it, it moves you to, you know, use the the legal parameters of petitions and and uh, all of those things, writing your council members, that's fantastic. We we have more <clears throat> rights and provisions here in the United States than we know what to do with. Uh, and so those are great avenues if that is if that's the direction that you want to go. Um, but these are things that we I, I don't believe that we can let slide. These are uh, especially the abortion issue. Uh, it's just an affront to uh, to God Himself, um, the murdering of children. But I also want to say at the onset that uh, there are there is forgiveness for this, right? It's not the unpardonable sin. Whether you're the mother, the doctor. The, the organization, the father, whomever you are within that line of people, this isn't something that keeps you out of heaven. Um, and so there is repentance, there's confession, and there is forgiveness for these sins. And so I don't want you walking away thinking like, man, this, this is a sin that's going to keep people out of heaven. It's absolutely not, right? 
um, you can repent of this uh, of this sin and tragedy that takes place. Um, but abortion here, you know, when you you look up what it means, it's just stopping something that has started. You know, you'll you'll hear that in military terms, abort the mission, right? So the mission started, so so it's stopping. Um, and so, what is interesting when you when you look back uh, at the history, and, and I was pleased to read, you know, Leah Savas, who is here, helped write a book on the history of abortion in America, fantastic book. Um, and uh, one of the one of the key arguments for abortion, um, you know, uh, I don't several decades ago, was that women need to have the right as a man to not be pregnant whenever she wants. And so that that was stated. That was an original argument. Because a man cannot be pregnant whenever he wants. We would agree with that, right? Uh, and I would actually continue on with the next subordinate clause. And he can't even be pregnant when he wants to, right? Um, but, uh, but they would say that's not right. Why does a man have a right to choose when he's not pregnant but a woman doesn't? And so that was, that was actually taken into court to say uh, I'm from a rights issue. Right. And uh, and so this is how it, it started getting into women need to have the right to say when she doesn't want to be pregnant. Um, and then obviously I was based on things like rape and incest and then got into more of, um, you know, even a, a married woman who doesn't want to be pregnant, even though she is. She has a right not to. And, and then it just went um, downhill from there. But I would say this question, when does life begin, as I been reading about it is by far the most debated question in the abortion discussion, right? Um, and I'll say from the onset, onset you can't be pro-choice. It's impossible. Uh, either you are for abortion or you're against abortion. Pro-choice is just a fancy way of saying, I don't want to say I want to murder children. Because you do, if you're pro-choice. Uh, and so either you are for the unborn child's life or you are for murdering the unborn child. There's no, there's no in-between stage. Uh, and so when does life actually begin? That's the, the question um, that has just been debated and debated. And, you know, you can obviously read uh, a ton of information from a scientific point of view, from a biblical point of view. Um, and so that the key is why uh, if something is not a life, then it doesn't matter if it's aborted or not. Nobody's going to say, hey, don't, you know, chop down and break up this podium. It's alive, right? If it gets broken Nobody cries because it's not a life, right? And so that's why it's saying, when is something just a lump of cells, as they say, in a woman's body? Uh, and then she, if she decides to get rid of it, then it's not that big of a deal. And this uh, quote, I'm going to read this paragraph to you. It's from Answers in Genesis. I thought it was really helpful. And he says, there are clearly significant differences in the way that the scientific community views the beginning of life. There is no obvious consensus among scientists about when human life begins. So can science really help us answer this question? Perhaps science by its nature is not capable of dealing directly with this problem. Scott Gilbert, Ph.D., professor of biology at Swarthmore College, notes, and this is his direct quote, If one does not believe in a soul, then one need not believe in a moment of ensoulment. The moments of fertilization, gastralization, neuralization, and birth are all then milestones in the gradual acquisition of what it is to be human. Uh, and he says, while one may have a particular belief in when the embryo becomes human, and here's what he says, it is very difficult to justify such a belief solely by science. So basically what he's saying is, either you believe that there's this long-term period of however long you think it is, it's just a best guess from when the egg is fertilized into becoming some sort of human, 
But if you don't believe that there's a soul that's attached to it, then it doesn't matter anyway, because it's only alive once it comes out of the womb. Or even if you do believe there's a soul, you could say, well, when does it actually get there? Here's the life stages of what that looks like, what the child looks like before it's born. And so sometime in there, maybe, right? So if the science community is undecided, and they're all over the map, by the way, um, then I think we should go to something objective, right? Our Christian moral ethic needs to come from something objective, which would be the Bible. And uh, there's a plethora of verses, but just a few of them. Psalm 51, 5, uh, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Once again, the answers in Genesis. It says, The most heard interpretation of this passage that the author David sees that he was sinful even at the time he was conceived. If he was not a person, then it follows that he could not have a sinful human nature at that time. A pre-human mass of cells could not have any basis for morality. Only the humanness occurring at the time of fertilization would allow David to possess a sinful nature at that time. So when the egg is fertilized... David is actually saying, and, you know, David, you know, you can argue David wasn't a doctor. He didn't know the process, which I think is actually even more relevant in how inspired scripture is, because he's saying, even at that time, I was conceived in my mother's womb. What does he say? That I was brought forth in iniquity in my sin. My mother conceived me. And to the point of uh, what um, Answers in Genesis is saying is he wouldn't be able to say that unless he was a person. So if God was just saying, hey, I'm just putting a, a lump of cells in there that's going to mutate itself into a person over the course of nine or ten months, then that can't be a person from the moment of conception. It would have to be a person somewhere down the line. But what the Bible is actually saying is, no, at the point of conception, that egg and, and fertilization process becomes a person. Jeremiah 1 also says, now the word of the Lord came to me, Jeremiah saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I have appointed you a prophet to the nations. And once again, from Answers in Genesis, he says, Here God tells Jeremiah that he was set apart even before he was born. So this would indicate that there was a personhood present before Jeremiah's birth. This verse even indicates that God considered Jeremiah a person and that he knew him before he was even formed. And once again, there's a lot more scripture references that you can go to talking about personhood. I mean, an easy one that you can think of is uh, when, when um, Mary got together with Elizabeth and what did the baby do? Jumped. Like unless there was some static electricity that was taking place at that moment, some weird thing going on, but there's a baby in there, and the baby's moving, right? Uh, and so there has to be some sort of personhood that's taking place. Uh, and then uh, da Daniel Heimbach is his fundamental Christian ethics. You can see that next sentence I really like. By definition, obligation to protect innocent human life begins when human life begins. And so to the Christian, we say at the moment of fertilization is when life begins, right? And so we have a, an obligation to protect human life. And that's why we can't be silent as believers. So before we get into the next one, any uh, questions, comments as you think through that? Yeah. Um, if you extrapolate this a little bit to different modes of contraception, mm -hmm. so those that 
So any abortive fashion, that's what you're talking about, right? Any abortive, or even uh, where does this, what's the biblical perspective on contraception? Well, the biblical perspective, you, you, I mean, without uh, without taking the next half an hour to, to, to yeah. dissect it, um, I would say a black and white statement would be anything that's abortive fashion, anything that murders that that sperm and egg once it's fertilized would be considered an abortion. We would say it's against the Bible. Preventative measures, we can debate and, and talk about such things. Um, but as far as um, uh, any anything at all that would destroy a fertilized egg is when we would we would have an issue with as a believer because we consider that's when the that becomes a person. Does that make sense? Are you looking for something deeper? Uh, yeah, that would be a whole other class, which we can do. Um, uh, but even with that, so when you think about implantation of a fertilized egg, so I'll give you both sides, right? So side number one, if the husband is, if they if they artificially inseminate the wife's egg or an egg from someone else, you have the husband's sperm or somebody else's sperm, right? So there are there are solid believers that say that would almost equate to uh, adultery because you have the, another man's sperm inside of the woman's body. But then you have somebody else that says, well, it's actually science, and it's not adultery because they didn't have the physical act of a sexual intercourse. It's just a fertilized egg that's going in there. And so I, I'm not, I can't give you a definitive answer. Here's exactly what the Bible says. Um, but I can tell you after reading about it, there are good, solid guys and good, solid arguments on both sides um, to say from a, a fertilized egg, depending on who's fertilizing it, and where the egg came from and what the actual issue is. But I would say uh, a lot of times in, in fertilization, you know, they'll say, I don't know, I'll just grab a number, let's fertilize 20 eggs and see which ones stick. Um, so then you're you're having multiple eggs that are just aborted because they, they didn't stick, and that's where the believer has to say, well, wait a minute, you know, we believe that life starts at conception, and as it starts at conception, we don't want any of those to be lost. Um, because we just we're not just kind of throwing things on the wall to see what sticks, right? Does that make sense? I mean, I know you're a doctor, so I'm sure you understand this better than I do. Um, but just after reading through uh, various ethic books on the idea, those are just what uh, is presented out there. And so there are things where you, as a believer, by your conscience, have to work through. But I would say the black and white issue is anything that's an abortive fashion, anything that is is killing that egg after it's fertilized would be considered uh, an abortion or a murder, if you will. So, yeah, Renee? God creates our soul when it's fertilized? Yeah, there's some that's been debated since the time of Christ. Um, yeah, so we would hold to that there is a, a soul that enters in at the moment of conception, yes. Yeah, created at that time. So there's not like a... So some used to believe there's like a bank of souls that were created during the six weeks of creation, right? Um, and, uh, you know, we would believe in what's called traducianism, right? So that's like the soul is created at the, and inserted at the time of conception. So that's why we believe in personhood. And that's going back to what David said in, in the psalm, was you can't be sinful unless you have a nature. And so that is being all brought together at one time. How it's done, the Bible doesn't say. So, but yeah, at that time, did you have something first? Um, would you say that it's unethical? There's a process of like freezing embryos, right? And I know that there is a, 
um, I've heard of even Christian couples adopting embryos that mm-hmm. were frozen for 30 years. Yeah. And that is wild. Um, but also, like, how does that work? I mean, is there... Is it possible that a soul, you know, at conception is just now frozen in time? This, you know. Yeah. So, you know, if you think about it, yeah. So, as the so our our foundational belief, what the Bible says, is that the soul comes in at the moment of fertilization, right? So, yeah, you would have that frozen egg under God's sovereign watch, right, taking care of that. And then, as far as you know, they call like snowflake adoption or something like that is a the nice term for it. Um, And once again, these are things like you'd have to work through. Uh, on your own with your husband or wife uh, on what that is. But like even adopting those, because some people say, what's the difference between adopting a fertilized egg versus adopting a child? Right? Like the, the end result is still the same. You're getting a child either from adoption or you're getting a child um, from adopting the egg. And so once again, that's where principally you'd have to work through because the Bible doesn't have anything specifically saying, hey, if an egg's been fertilized and frozen for three decades here's what the christian is supposed to do um but there are there's very good material out there on that uh as well and so it is a uh, it is a it's a great question but i don't think we're gonna land a hundred percent in you know 20 minutes on that but it's a great question to ask yeah 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 and i i've watched a couple of debates on this subject and you said earlier like a lump of, ce- a lump of cells being pulled out of the body Sometimes they switch to just fetus. It's okay because it's just a fetus, mm-hmm. and fetus quite literally just means uh, unborn human, like a, a human. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have them? What would be your advice on how to deal with a, por- a person that believes in abortion? Because we would not. Would it be a fruitless debate because we don't approach it from the same perspective? So. How should we... That's actually in the last page of my notes. Oh, really? I would say contact the elders of your church. Uh, Especially Bob. Yeah. yeah. Maybe at a Q&A. I don't know. No, uh, no. <laughs> no, that's fantastic. And I have that at the end of the page. How can we then kind of live in here? No, that's that's a, that's a great follow-up. So, uh, And so just looking at, was there any other questions, comments, anything burning in your heart? Um. So the next heading there, you can see therapeutic, eugenic, and elective abortion. So basically, you have the three types of abortions that fall into our culture. Um, you know, I understand there's there's other things. But this is kind of the kind of the three that you'll hear brought up the most. Um, you see the top sentence there: therapeutic abortions are those performed to save a life or the health of the mother. So they would say like, mom has cancer. And so she's pregnant, and she needs to have radiation therapy, but she's pregnant with the baby, so you have to choose who lives or dies. And just so you understand, there's no guarantee that either of them are going to die. Many babies are born uh, after the mom goes through radiation and chemotherapy, and babies are born just fine. So there is not a black and white, here's what has to happen, here's what is guaranteed to happen, right? Um, And uh, they would say, hey, the mom has a weak heart. I've read this one, too. Once again, there's no guarantee. So what we're talking about is the Christian having an absolute ethic. So when somebody comes to you, your doctor comes to you and they say, hey, don't know if mom's going to make it. She has this disorder or she has this. Yes, that gives us more information that, that we can now make a decision on. But that doesn't mean we leave what we believe, right? And so we're, we're still not, we still have to make that, that informed decision, not necessarily informed and influenced by what, 
the doctor has told us. We take that information and we utilize it, but ultimately we have to go back to see what Scripture has to say. Another big one is ectopic, ectopic pregnancies. Once again, I'm not an expert in this area, so I just got a, a quote here from the Heritage Foundation. And speaking of these, uh, they say, Tragic but rare event puts a mother's life in grave danger. It occurs in 1-2% to of pregnancies, but it's responsible for 4-10% to of maternal deaths. Untreated, it can cause a fallopian tube to rupture, which ends the life of the baby and likely the mother as well. Treating ectopic pregnancy is different from having an abortion. Abortion is an intentional, unnatural procedure that kills the baby in the womb. An ectopic procedure, in contrast, attempts to save the life of both mother and unborn child. A number of treatment options are available, but each seeks to separate the embryo from the fallopian tubes. And I like this next one. It says, the goal of the procedure is not ending the baby's life, but rather attempting to save it. The first recorded case of a doctor saving the life of a woman from a ruptured ectopic pregnancy was in 1883. And similar cases have continued since then. And so generally speaking, especially when you read the abortion debate, many of the, the pro-abortion people will say they, they base it on this. When you read it through, especially now, say, look, in trying to deny health care, they want, um, even in Michigan, that was a big stance, they want women to die who need emergency procedures. That's what you read. And so many people who were normally pro-life were like, well, man, if I vote not to, not to have abortion, then I want women to die. Well, that's not true. We were believing the rhetoric instead of what the actual truth was, right, at that stage. And so as you can see here, there's a huge difference between ectopic pregnancy procedure because they're not going in to murder a child. Uh, and abortion is looking to specifically, abortion is not looking to save anybody. Realize that. There's a huge difference. You are intentionally looking to murder a child. Where here, the difference is they're looking to save the life of the mother and the unborn child. Unfortunately, in many cases, and I didn't get the, the specifics on that, in many cases, uh, the child does end up losing their life. Um, but they are looking to not end it, but rather to save it. And once again, it's 1% to 2% of pregnancies. So we're not basing our entire argument on should abortion be legal based on the 1% to 2%. Um, so then you have eugenic and elective abortions. And those abortions are determining an otherwise healthy child before birth, right? So we would, biblically speaking, there's no reason for aborting a child in this manner. Um, why? Genesis 1.27. It's simple. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. Oftentimes we forget that that embryo or that, that fertilized egg is created in the image of God. That fertilized egg only has a soul because God gave that fertilized egg a soul. So God created the life. We don't have the option to say that we need to murder this, this child because of our, our livelihood being changed or whatever. And I like this last quote here by Heimbach. He says, this verse tells us that the ethical value of human life is not derived from humanity itself, but from its creator, God. That's super, super important. Because when you think about abortion, especially um, like the elective abortion or um, eugenic abortion, so when they, so when we're deriving worth from humanity, that's when the doctor comes in and says your child is going to be disabled. They're not going to have the life you think that they're going to have. It'll be better to abort that child. So what the doctor is saying is he or she is getting their value for human life by humanity itself. Instead of saying, your child's actually made in the image of God, 
and the child that you're getting is the exact child that God wants you to have, regardless of how that child comes out. And so that's where we have to be able to say it doesn't matter, you know, if our child is is uh, um, deformed or doesn't have everything else. Because and, and I like I love reading these these stories because it always ends with go to that child or that adult who the doctor said should have been aborted and tell ask them would you have rather been aborted did you hate your life did you know did, were you not a productive member in whatever society that you were placed in right and so it's sad to think that a doctor would come to a, a, a mother and say that because we've tested this thing and we've realized that your child is not going to fit in the standards of our society it's better that you murder them and here's a side note that the doctors don't tell you that test is not 100% anyway not even close and so now we're basing our decision based on what we think humanity values instead of what we know God values and so every child should be born at least as God wants them to be born right we know there's miscarriages and and all of these kind of things that happen. And that's all under God's control as well. Right. Any questions or comments before we move on? Speaking of abortion, yeah. Earlier when you said, there's nothing good in me. Right. right. Told the I said me, but yeah. I'm okay. sure there's something good in you. <laughs> Us. That's true. And yet we are of ultimate value. And I think there's some confusion for people between the Imago Dei mm. Told depravity, and they get that all goofed up. Like, wait, there, there, there's something good about this person. Well, yeah. Is there anything good in them? Well, that's different. Right. So I think that. You want to explain it? I no. Or is that where you're ending? Right. There's nothing good in you. Yeah. No, I think that's a great point. Right. So the point that he's making is yes, there's nothing good in us, uh, meaning that we can't actually do anything good for God apart from being born again. Right. But the good that's implanted on everybody is that we're made in the image of God. So we share the communicable attributes, the, the attributes of God to love, to know. Um, we share them in a, in a smaller way because we're not God. When you are born again, you start to have the image of God restored in you, the Bible says. And that's your sanctification process. The more that your flesh, your, your sinful part, your desires are falling away and becoming what God desires for you, that's a restoration of the image of God in you coming out. Everybody was is born in or with the image of God, if you will. Everybody. Because God uh, is implanting all of those attributes, uh, some greater than others on other people. That's why we believe in the sanctity of human life, because God created them. Not because there's anything good in them, but because God himself is the one creating them. So. Yeah, it's a good distinction. Thank you. Next time you can explain it. Yeah, right. <laughs> I mentioned this to you before, but I had a realization about um, why it's pointless to argue with someone about the beginning of life. Because in any age of information, ultrasound, even, everybody knows if it's a separate person. So, um, but like with the advent of, you know, teaching of evolution, anti-theism, that people don't have a soul, isn't that more of Yeah, it's certainly, you know, that's where we have to be kind of uh, detectives. Because what you're, what you're using is a logical argument, right? Um, so, yeah, when you have an ultrasound and you can see the baby and, you know, our son, we had a 3D ultrasound done however many weeks it was. And then, 
he actually looked like that when he came out, right? Like it's, it's crazy, right? And um, and so I, I think I, I think that you're right that people deny the truth that there that there's an actual baby in there, a human in there. So we actually have to ask the next question: Is why are they denying the truth? And I wouldn't I wouldn't start or, or stop with evolution personally because it's a worldview issue, and it goes back to the heart. Because if they say that the baby inside of a woman is a person, then they have to say how did that baby become a person? And so there has to be something greater than them. And it always boils down to the same thing. If there's something greater than you, then you're accountable to that thing. But if you yourself are the greatest thing that you know, then you're only accountable to yourself. And so it goes back to, I just don't want to believe in God. Because if I believe in God, then I'm accountable to this God. And I can't do what I want to do, right? And so from that belief then comes evolution. So because you don't want to be accountable to God, you now have to find something that's compatible with your view. So evolution isn't the, the seedbed. Evolution is the fruit of a selfish seedbed. So if I can say that I'm the ultimate thing on earth as a human, then I can say, how did I get here? Well, I evolved as being, now I'm the ultimate thing. So because of evolution, and so you could even go, you know, kind of corresponding or correlating with evolution as survival of the fittest. So then you see this lump of cells that's in there, or you get the report that your child's going to be disabled in some way. Well, we're going to have to get rid of that one because it's not going to fit in with our, you, you know, our perfect society that we have, right? And so it all stems, in my opinion, from just a denial of God. And that's why, you know, Psalms is so clear. A fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Well, a biblical fool is a bad place to be because all you're relying on is yourself. And so the best thing man can come up with is that we evolve from something. and But that's the fruit of having a non-belief in God. So, yeah, I, I think it's pointless to, to debate about anything personally, but especially that, yeah, I would agree. Yeah, sure. Kind of going along with what you said, I've heard a lot that it basically depends on whether or not you want it. If you don't want it, it's a lump of cells, get rid of it. But if you want it, that's my baby. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I mean, because there's a lot of people who believe in abortion and they have children. Right. Is that just a lump of cells growing in their body? I mean, they're going to the doctor. They're getting, you know, they're having checkups and they're listening to the heartbeat and they're they're doing all the same things that the other women are doing. The ones right. that don't believe in it. And I'm like, it 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 just doesn't make sense. But it, I think kind of goes along with what you're saying. It's like you know their belief on whether there's a god or I mean, they're right. their own god that's right so they're their own god i would agree yeah so basically you're the world view that you're debating is are you the king of your world or is god the king of your world at the end of the day yeah yeah um uh the devil and his schemes of always trying to trick us is still the same old um tricks mm-hmm. but um this generation of post truth of the truth facts don't matter. Right. That, that individual feeling of, I feel that it's not a baby. Right. doesn't matter what the ultrasound says. doesn't matter what science says. Right. We see that with men dressing as teenage girls. Right. And it doesn't matter what my chromosomes say. My feeling is this. That's right. That I'm a puppy. And right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, we live in a feeling space world, absolutely. Or at least in our country, but yeah. 
Jim? I agree. There has to be some something motivating this intense desire to have life. And they're radical in their thinking and excuses to take a life. And there has to be something very powerful for their reasoning going down those roads. And I always thought that that's what that is. Yeah, no, I would agree. It, it's shaking the fist at God, yes. Yeah. Yeah, Val? Yeah, yeah. I would say, you know, even with Sherry, your comment, like, you know, you can have an ultrasound, you can see it's a baby and he's moving or she's doing whatever and you still murder the child. Absolutely. I mean, it's just an affront to God. It's just a searing of the conscience and it's doing what you want to do as opposed to what God has designed to happen. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, one of the, the most heinous things that's happened in our society. Uh, and then just the last few minutes looking at euthanasia, doctor-insisted suicide, uh, often called a mercy killing, if you see there. And uh, so what I want to do is what's happening in our culture today with this. Uh, first of all, Exodus 20.13, you shall not murder. So if I, I'm not going to bury the heading until the end. I don't believe in any of this, uh, murdering people, um, doctor-assisted or not. So taking a life outside of what the Bible permits, meaning by war, uh, is sin, right? And it's, it's always murder. Um, so... But what's happening in our culture today, far more in Canada, if you haven't been following what's going on there, um, this is from their website. So to be eligible for medical assisted dying, a medical assistance in dying, you must meet this criteria. So it's got a few things there. And if you look at the second bullet point from the bottom, Canada has also sought to allow those who are suffering from mental illnesses to seek death. This has been postponed until March 17, 2024, because they're trying to sort out what actual mental illness is. So once they figure out, so it's been postponed a year essentially because they don't know what mental illness is. They Well, I would say they know what mental illness is, but because it was so broad, they were realizing that they were going to be murdering a whole lot of people, and they didn't want to murder that many people, so I think they're going to try to narrow it down a bit. Um, that's just my opinion anyway. Uh, yeah. Um, I just listened to Albert Moeller's podcast, I think it was last Friday, and he was talking about the stuff going on in Canada with euthanasia, and he was saying that, you know, they have, like, uh, there's an age limit. So, like, if you're 18 mm. or whatever and you have this, you know, then you can do that. He said, but, he goes, you're going to see that people are going to come along and say, well, that's not fair. You know, th- you know, I'm this, and then I have these things. And he goes, it's going to come down to a rights thing. That's right, yeah. And so he, it's just going to get broader and broader. Yeah. And the, what I was thinking at the time was, like, you know, we have a suicide hotline. We have all this stuff going on. So is it, you know... I'm just kind of thinking through. I'm like, so if you go to the doctor and it's physician-assisted, that's okay. 
But if somebody just wants to kill themselves, you know, without any help, I mean, is that still So now you see the clash of two worldviews. Exactly. Right? So we have a suicide hotline. We have money set aside to make sure people can't kill themselves. But then the government's also funding people to kill themselves as long as they do it in a sterile environment. Right? And so, yeah, so now you're seeing, once again, the clash of two worldviews. Absolutely. So, Bob, clarification. So does the mentally ill ill person have to get consent? Well, see, this is where they're running into issues. So I read this a year ago, and uh, it was that the the mentally ill person had to have a doctor sign off over a certain amount of months that he wasn't getting better, and so there was a progressive um, kind of downward spiral. Then they also added on there parents of minors who also saw that the minor was not getting better could also sign off to have their children killed. Um, That has since been rescinded. Um, and I don't know if it's going to come back on or not. So, yeah, there was a time frame that it had to be shown that there was no progress. So, basically, if you think about this, it's going off of a humanistic viewpoint. So, what they're saying is this person is not a productive member in society. This person is not going to get any better. They're going to be a continual draw in society. So, therefore, for the individual and for the society, so we talked about the utilitarian ethic. So, for the betterment of society, we need to murder the people who are not going to be productive members of our society, right? Sounds a lot like what they did in World War II Germany, if you ask me. But yeah. He was also talking about that it's very subjective. Mm-hmm. So if you go to this doctor and this doctor's like, no, you don't meet the criteria, he goes, you just go to another doctor. You keep going to a different right. doctor until you find one that says, oh, yeah, you're a candidate for, you know, let's right. do that. Yeah, because it's all based on our emotions and feelings for the most part. So, And then I just wanted to uh, get about five minutes left. Um, you know, the difference in termination of life support and euthanasia. And there's just a little bit on there if you're interested in the differences between that. And then a theology of death and dying and really just a kind of a brief overview of uh, how should the Christian view death and dying, right? And um, essentially, if you look at the last sentence, for the Christian, death is our graduation from sanctification to glorification. When we try to prolong life here on earth, it may be because we don't fully understand what awaits us in the next life. Um, and so we just have to have a right view. Everyone who is born, um, you know, they always say the two things in life guaranteed, right? Taxes and death. And um, if you haven't got the first one yet, the second one's definitely there for you. Um, but uh, we're all guaranteed to die, right? And we're going to die exactly when God says, because the word he says is appointed. For it is appointed for man to die. That word appointed means that you have a death date. You don't know when it is. God does. Praise the Lord. Because otherwise we'd live a whole lot differently. Um, but God knows when we're going to die. So you can look that up in, in Hebrews 9. Um, and then just the last page, I wanted to get there. Um, Chris, your, your question is, what can we do about this? So how do we live to, to impact our culture? And this is where we as believers need to be active. And when I say active, I'm not talking about bombing abortion clinics or stuff like that. I'm talking about in the spheres of influence. Oftentimes we think on big macro scales. How can I change the viewpoint of Grand Rapids? Well, nobody's calling you to do that. And maybe they are, and God bless you if that's what you want to do. But I'm talking about just your sphere of influence, right? The the grocery store that you go to, the restaurants that you're in, the family members that you talk to, your workplace environment, the school, that you, whatever those things are, how are you impacting those people? If you're a mom, your kids, if you're a dad, your families. Like, we all have a sphere of influence, some larger, some smaller. It doesn't mean that we don't impact people. And so we live, and you look at that top um, quote there, I thought it was good. We live in what is described as a culture of death. 
Abortion on demand has been practiced for decades. Now some are seriously proposing infanticide. Euthanasia is promoted as a viable means of solving various social and financial problems. This focus on death as an answer to the world's problem is a total reversal of the biblical model. Death is our enemy. 1 Corinthians 15.26 That last enemy, it says, will be abolished is death. Life is a sacred gift from God. When given the choice between life and death, God told Israel to choose life. And then euthanasia spurns the gift and embraces the curse. So people are being told the only hope you have is death. That's why we see a rise in suicides. That's why we see our culture accepting euthanasia. Our culture accepts uh, abortion and infanticide because they are out of hope. Well, what a wonderful time to live. Because you as believers have the hope. The hope right? Like you can actually point people to the one who gives the ultimate hope. And we can't shrink away, but we have to be able to step into these areas. When we hear these conversations taking place, we have to be able to offer hope. And if you look at the fourth bullet point down concerning abortion, we need to be able to articulate how adoption is not just an option, but it's the actual very heart of the gospel. If you missed Todd's theology class last week, I think it was on, I did miss it. So I think it was on adoption. I just saw the heading on one of the papers. I see people shaking their head. Got that one right. Uh, so you see Romans 8. For you have not received the spirit of slavery leading again to fear, but you have received a spirit of adoption. Like we are adopted into the family of God. When you practice adoption, promote adoption, help people with adoption here, you're showing that same relationship that God has with us. We were not born into the family of God. None of us were born saved. We were born again into God's family and adopted into that. When one's contemplating euthanasia, we have the same gospel that offers hope. The Bible actually talks about the blessing of getting old and the the small amount of time we have here in pain. And I get it. I've sat by bedsides as people have died. And I've had to tell families that your family member has died. I understand that there's pain at the end of people's lives. And there's pain that maybe some of you live with for 30, 40, 50 years. I get that. But in the light of eternity, that's not even a drop in the bucket. (coughs) So when we're explaining hope to people, yes, you may have perpetual pain this side of eternity. But what awaits you is so much more glorious. And we have to explain that to people. We have to be honest with people. We're not taking away the pain that they feel. We're not taking away their suffering. But we're giving them a context for it. And that's Christ himself. Christ suffered for us as well. And that defending of the hopeless, or defending of the helpless, all over the Old Testament. I just did a quick search on it, and I like this passage the best, so I put it in there. Isaiah twenty-five four, for you have been a defense for the helpless. Speaking of God, a defense for the needy in his distress, a refuge from the storm, a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a rainstorm against a wall. Nobody is without hope with Christ on their side. This is what we have to be able to tell people. Which means that we ourselves have to have that hope in us. We have to believe that hope. We can't be walking around with a sad countenance. Oh yeah, come to Jesus. He's great. I don't know. Oh, he's my hope. He's my joy. Man, can you believe what's happening right now? Sheesh. Right? If they want that, they'll go to the bar or the country club or the YMCA and listen to people talk in the locker room. They need to have real substance and that's where we come in how can we ever impact our society it starts with your small sphere of people around you talking to people 
letting them know that there is an actual hope that's out there. And then you can give them the same words, right? The question that Jesus asked Peter in John six sixty eight, where are you going to go? He says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And that's where we too need to be pointing people. And so while you look around, and of course we live in a dark time, they have since the beginning of time, right? And so it's nothing new under the sun. But we have such a great opportunity now to be able to be lights in the midst of just a culture that's that's looking for something to hold on to. And boy, that Hebrews 6.19, the anchor for the soul, who is Jesus. And we have that hope to give people. So we're out of time now. Next week we're going to look at war and uh, talk about the ethics of war and killing and bombs and guns and all those kind of things. So let me pray for us and uh, we can get out of here for today. So Lord, we thank you for... Uh, just your word, we thank you for the clarity that it gives us, the confidence that we have, Lord, not in our own intellect or, Lord, not in fancy sayings, but, Lord, in the fact that what you have said is truth. And, Lord, we can stand on that truth because not only is are you never changing, but your word is never changing. And I thank you, Lord, for all the opportunities you give us to be lights in a dark culture so we can share the hope that lies within us. Uh, so, Lord, I pray that you would bless our week further in Christ's name. Amen. All right, guys. Have a wonderful week. You've been listening to Presented at Maranatha Bible Church in Comstock Park, Michigan, where we exist to display God's glory, declare God's truth, delight in God's Son, and disciple God's people. No part of this digital file may be reproduced or distributed without prior written consent. For permission, go to mbcmi.org.